In this recording, we're going to look at a very crucial distinction that Reb Moshe Soloveitchik makes between two elements of the sanctity and status of Eretz Yisrael. Now, we don't have a sustained long discussion from Reb Moshe developing this idea, so we have to put it together from a few different sources. And the kernel of the idea comes from Reb Moshe, but his son, Reb Yosef Dov, really develops this idea beautifully and uses it to explain a number of things. So this is a very important concept. So first we'll go through the idea and how the Soloveitchik's it, and then we'll see it in broader context of other commentators and how this idea helps explain the whole concept of Eretz Yisrael and answers some very significant questions. And Rabbi Yosef Dov has a comment that even though his family were not Zionists, but he says that the way they connected with Eretz Yisrael was always studying and thinking about the halachas and concepts of Eretz Yisrael. So this is a good example of that. So first I'm going to list the sources where this idea appears and then we'll go through the thread of the concept. The only thing that we have from Reb Moshe Soloveitchik himself is in Chidush Agrama Levi on the Rambam on page 84 at the end of Hilchoshmito Yovel. There's a short, just one paragraph about this idea. Now, his son, Reb Yosef Dov, quotes this idea two times. The first is in a book called Chamesh Drashot, which is five speeches that he gave explaining his support for Zionism, even though his family was traditionally anti-Zionist. So most of the book is more ideological, but sometimes he'll include a halachic discussion. So on page 92, in a footnote, he quotes this idea of his father and develops it. And he also quotes this idea in a 1935 letter from Boston, which is quoted in Igros Hagrid on page 264. Now, interestingly, this letter seems to be to his father, and here he does not give his father credit for this idea. So it sounds like he developed the idea. And even more interestingly, Reb Moshe responds to this letter, and it's quoted on page 270 in Igros Hagrid, and he doesn't point out that this was his idea. Now, this is an overall trend in some of these early Soloveitchik writings that sometimes they borrow other people's ideas and just sort of insert them in their piece, which makes sense because obviously they're family and they think and study very similarly. And obviously, great tzaddikim like this are not obsessed with who gets credit for which idea. Their interest is in developing creative new Torah ideas. So there's a lot of misattribution in a lot of these writings. And we'll talk about this in a later recording, but not now. Now, likewise, Reb Moshe's younger son, Reb Aaron Soloveitchik, in his Sefer Perach Mata Aaron on the Rambam Sefer Ava, on page 178, he has a kuntris on Inyane Eretz Yisrael, an article about Eretz Yisrael, and he also develops this idea, and he does not give his father credit. So it seems possible that Rabbi Yosef Dov and Rabbi Aaron heard the idea from their father, or they might have come up with it on their own, and the father and his two sons were thinking along similar lines. So those are the original sources that we have for this idea. It's also quoted in Rav Herschel Schechter's Nefesh HaRav about Rabbi Yosef Dov. Beginning on page 79, he goes through this idea, as well as in a Sefer Shi'ure HaRav on Sanhedrin, which is Shi'urim of Rabbi Yosef 
Dov on Sanhedrin. So beginning on page 178, he goes to this idea. And another Sefer of Shi'ure HaRav on Chala, beginning on page 126, he goes to this idea. So there's a number of primary and secondary sources recording Reb Moshe and Reb Yosef Dov's views on this concept. Now, for the basic idea, I'm going to begin with the version in the Chamesh Drashot. Most mitzvahs are performed whether in Israel or even outside of Israel. So like tefillin or sukkah can be done outside of Israel as well. But there are mitzvahs which only apply in the land of Israel. Now, those mitzvahs are divided into two different categories. So one of them is agricultural. So the laws of truma and meiser and shemitah only apply in Israel because they depend on the land. And agricultural mitzvahs only apply in Israel, not outside. But then there is another category of mitzvahs which only apply in Israel, which are not agricultural. So for example, Egla Arufa, if there's an unknown murder, so they would kill a calf, there was a whole ritual, that only happens in Israel, not outside. Giving smicha, so nowadays we ordain rabbis, but it's not the real smicha, the real smicha, which was an unbroken chain back to Moshe, can only be done in Israel. And Kiddush HaChodesh and Ibar HaShanah, sanctifying the new month through witnesses and adding a leap year, can only be done in Israel even though none of these are agricultural laws. Now, the question is that the Rambam gives slightly different borders for these various mitzvahs. So there are two major borders of Israel. One is what Yehoshua captured when they captured it the first time. And then the second time when Ezra captured it, they captured less of Israel. So the first one is Ole Mitzrayim and the second one is Ole Babel. Now, there's a debate in the Gemara after the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash, did the first sanctity of Yehoshua remain or did the land lose its sanctity and it needed to be sanctified again by Ezra. So the Rambam rules that Kedusha Rishona Kidshal Shaita Velo Kidshal Asid Lavo that Yehoshua's sanctity was temporary, like that view in the Gemara. So once the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed and the Jews were exiled, the land lost its sanctity and then Ezra re-sanctified it and that sanctity remains in effect for all time. So that's the view of the Rambam. Now says the Rambam, the agricultural mitzvahs depend on the second sanctity. So areas which were captured by Yehoshua, but not by Ezra, are not included in the laws of agriculture. So there would be no truma or meiser or shemitah because those lands are not sanctified nowadays. But when it comes to the other mitzvahs, like giving smicha or kiddush chodesh, sanctifying the new month, the non-agricultural mitzvahs, which only apply in Israel, there, oddly, the Rambam rules that it depends on the borders of Yehoshua not the borders of Ezra, even though the land is no longer sanctified from Yehoshua's capture. So why should those borders be in effect for Kiddush HaChodesh or Smicha or Egla Rufa if those borders are no longer sanctified? And why does the Rambam differentiate between the agricultural mitzvahs and the non-agricultural mitzvahs, which borders we use? 
So Reb Moshe answered with a great insight. There are two different elements to the status of Eretz Yisrael. So there's two different ways to think about Eretz Yisrael. We know that Israel is the chosen sanctified land, but one way of saying that is that it has sanctity. So the land of Israel, whatever exactly this means, but it's more sanctified than other lands. The other way to think about it is the shame Eretz Yisrael, that there is land which is called Israel, even if it's not sanctified. Now, when it comes to the agricultural mitzvahs, says Rab Moshe, those depend on sanctified land. So any produce that grows in sanctified land has special rules. And if it grows in unsanctified land, it does not have those rules. So that's why it only applies to the borders that were captured by Ezra, which are sanctified nowadays. But the borders of Yehoshua lost their Kedusha, so the agricultural rules no longer apply to those borders. As opposed to the other mitzvahs of Egla Rufa and Smicha and Kiddush HaChodesh, those don't depend on sanctity of the land. They depend on being in the land of Israel, even if it's no longer sanctified. So that's why even Yehoshua's borders are considered the land of Israel, even though they don't have Kedusha, and that's why those mitzvahs apply in those borders, even though they were not captured by Ezra. So that's his very creative distinction, and this is a very fundamental concept that there is a shame Eretz Yisrael, a status of being part of Israel, even if it's not sanctified. Now, Reb Yosef Dov adds another step to this idea. What does it mean to have a shame Eretz Yisrael, the status of Israel, even if there's no Kedusha? What makes that type of land different than any other land? So says Reb Yosef Dov, very importantly, that the agricultural mitzvahs depend on the land. So the basis for those mitzvahs is that they grew in sanctified land, as opposed to the other mitzvahs of Egla, Rufa, and Smicha, and Kiddush HaChodesh, which do not depend on the land, they depend on the people, but they only apply to Jews who live in Israel. So the basis of those mitzvahs is that a Jew who lives in Israel is required to follow those mitzvahs. So the Jewish people are the ones giving the basis for those mitzvahs, and that's the meaning of Shem Eretz Yisrael. If a Jew lives in land which was Israel, even though it's not currently sanctified, but that Jew has the status and the sanctity, not in the land, but in the person, has the sanctity of a Jew who lives in Israel. So they're obligated in those mitzvahs. So this is a very brilliant addition to his father's idea that the Shem Eretz Yisrael is tied in with the Jewish people. It's not about the land. It's not sanctity in the land and the Jews live on the land but it's sanctity that's tied up with the Jewish people who are living on the land of Israel. So a Jew living in Israel has a certain sanctity as opposed to a Jew living outside of Israel. So this is all a very important concept. And as we'll see, it answers a number of questions. And it's also very philosophically important. Now, in Chidusha Agram, Reb Moshe adds that based on this analysis, so in the 70 years between the first exile and the second Beis Hamikdash, these mitzvahs of Egla, Rufa, and Smicha would have still applied to a Jew living in Israel at that time, even though, according to the view in the Gemara that the Rambam follows, the land was not sanctified, but since it had a shame Eretz Yisrael, it was called Eretz Yisrael, so those mitzvahs continued to apply. 
Now, Rabbi Yosef Dov, in his letter in Igros Hagrid, expands this concept to include a few other mitzvahs as well. The Rambam rules that when the Jews came into Israel, there were three mitzvahs that they were obligated. Not in the desert, only once they came into Israel, which are to appoint a king, to destroy Amalek, and to build the base Amikdash. So Rabbi Yosef Dov says, coming into Israel in the days of Yehoshua had a very specific meaning. It meant that they were capturing and settling the land. Now, in the days of Ezra, the Jews did not capture the land. There was no war where the Jews captured it. They just moved in, the king gave them permission, so they settled it. So Rabbi Yosef Dov wants to know, do the mitzvahs of the king Amalek and the Beis HaMikdash only kick in when the Jews capture the land? Meaning when the Rambam says that those three mitzvahs depend on moving into Israel, does it have to be the same way it was done in the times of Yehoshua, but it did not apply during the second Beis HaMikdash? So there would have been no mitzvah to appoint a king or to destroy Amalek or build the Beis HaMikdash during the second Beis HaMikdash. Or is capturing the land not a requirement for those mitzvahs to kick in? Just living in Israel is enough, and that kicks in those mitzvahs. So says Rabbi Yosef Dov, based on his father's idea, he expands it to include these mitzvahs as well. Building a Beis HaMikdash, appointing a king, destroying Amalek are not agricultural mitzvahs. So they don't depend on the sanctity of the land. They depend on the shame Eretz Yisrael. And as we saw, the name Eretz Yisrael does not leave once the Jews were exiled, only the sanctity left. But the shame Eretz Yisrael continues for all time once Yehoshua captured it. So these three mitzvahs are also included in that category. Once Yehoshua captured it, the three mitzvahs kicked in for all time. Any time that the Jews live in Israel, there's a mitzvah to have a king destroy Amalek and build the Beis HaMikdash because they depend on the shame Eretz Yisrael and that continues for all time. It didn't end with the exile. Now, in his letter, Rabbi Yosef Dov also alludes to this, and this is how it's presented in Nefesh HaRav, that based on this, we could answer a question of the Minchas Chinuch. There's Yerushalmi in Sanhedrin, quoted by Tosos in Sanhedrin Yud Aleph Amud Beis, which asks that the halacha is that Kiddush HaChodesh and Ibor Hashanah, the new month and the leap years, are only supposed to be done in Israel. Now, during the 70 years when the Jews were exiled, how did they do those mitzvahs? How did they set up the calendar when there was nobody left in Israel? So the Yerushalmi answers that the only requirement to do the calendar in Israel is if it's possible, but if it's not possible, like the great rabbis are in Chutz La'aretz, so then it can be done in Chutz La'aretz. So that's how Yirmiyahu and Yechel Cheskel and Baruch Benaria, the great prophets and leaders during the period of that exile, they established the calendar even in Chutz La'aretz because there were no comparable great Talmidei Chachamim left in Israel. And the Bavli and Brachos Samach Gimel says the same idea. Now, the Minchas Chinuch asks on this whole discussion, according to the view in the Gemara that Kedusha Rishona Lokid Shalasid Lavo, the first sanctity was temporary, it did not continue past the exile. So, what kind of question is this? How did they sanctify the new month outside of Israel? And the Yerushalmi is implying that really Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel and Baruch should have sanctified the new month in Israel. But why should that be? Israel was not a sanctified land anymore. So it was the same as any other land. So what does it matter where they sanctified the new month at that time? Obviously, the halacha that it has to be done in Israel, according to the Menchas Chinuch, 
only applies when there's sanctity to Israel. But if Israel loses its Kedusha, so then why can't those mitzvahs of the calendar be done outside of Israel? So why is the Yushalmi saying that they should have done it in Israel, except that they had a reason why they did it outside? Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, according to his father's idea, so this answers the Minchas Chinuch's question, because the mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh and Iber Hashana does not depend on the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, it depends on the shame Eretz Yisrael, the status of Eretz Yisrael, and that continued permanently from the time Yehoshua captured it. So that never went away with the exile, and that's exactly why Yirmiyahu and Baruch and Yechezkel should have done Kiddush HaChodesh and Iber Hashana in Israel, even though it no longer had sanctity, because since it was the shame Eretz Yisrael, so those mitzvahs continued to apply only in Israel, not in Chutz La'aretz. So this idea of Reb Moshe answers that question of the Minchas Chinuch. Now in Nefsharavi quotes that Reb Yosef Dov answered another question on the Rambam using this idea. The Rambam in Hilchus Melachim, Hey, Zayin, and Ches rules the Torah prohibition, which is in three places, that it's prohibited to live in Eretz Mitzrayim, in the land of Egypt. And then the Rambam adds, Vi it seems to me, that's how the Rambam alerts us when he's saying something that's not explicit in the Gemara. This is his own ruling that he came up with. So the Rambam adds, Shim Kavash Eretz Mitzrayim Melech Yisrael Al Piedei Bezdin Shehimu if a Jewish king, based on the guidance of the Sanhedrin, captures the land of Egypt, so he goes all the way down south and captures the land of Egypt and adds it to Israel, so then it's allowed to live there. The Torah only prohibited living in Egypt when it's owned by the Egyptians. Because it's a very disgraceful land, but if the Jews capture it and it's part of Israel, so then it's permitted to live there. So Rabbi Yosef Dov asks, this seems very obvious. Any land surrounding Israel that the Jews capture and add to Israel becomes sanctified. That's one of the things the Torah says, wherever the Jews capture can be additional Israel land. And it has all the full rules of the land of Israel, the same sanctity. The Jews are able to expand Israel. So if they capture Egypt, of course you're allowed to live there. It's now part of Israel. So what is the Rambam saying? It seems to me as if this is a totally novel, creative idea that he came up with. Of course you can live there because now it's part of Israel. So says Rabbi Yosef Dov, applying his father's idea, we can explain this language in the Rambam. There is something called called Kibush Yachid. There are certain areas in Syria that David captured, but they did not become fully part of Eretz Yisrael. And there's some debate why, but the Rambam explains because he captured them before he captured the full borders of Israel. So in order to expand Eretz Yisrael, it can only be done after the actual borders are fully captured. But if a king captures outside of Israel before he fully captured inside of Israel, so that additional land is not fully sanctified. So that's called Kibush Yachid. It had a quasi-status as Eretz Yisrael. Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, maybe the Rambam is telling us what happens in a case where a king captures Egypt before he captures fully the borders of Eretz Yisrael. So now there's a Kibush Yachid on Mitzrayim. Is someone allowed to live there or not? 
So the Rambam is saying, even though it doesn't have the full sanctity of Eretz Yisrael, it doesn't have the full Kedusha because it's Kibush Yachid, but that's considered shame Eretz Yisrael. It still has the status of Eretz Yisrael enough that a person is allowed to live there. So that is a new novel ruling of the Rambam. It's not clear. What is clear is that if a king captured all of Israel and then he captured outside of Israel, so of course all of that additional land becomes like Israel itself. But in a case where the king captured Egypt as Kibush Yachid, so it was not fully sanctified, the Rambam is telling us it's still shame Eretz Yisrael and one is permitted to live there. So this is another expansion of his father's idea. Now in Nefshar Rav, he explains the idea of shame Eretz Yisrael along the same lines as in the Chamesh Drashot, but this is a nicer, crisper formulation of it, which is that the mitzvahs that only apply in Israel are mitzvahs on the tzibor, that apply communally. So it's not like tefillin or sukkah or shema or shofar, which apply to individuals. Those are mitzvahs that each individual Jew has to do. So those mitzvahs every person has to do, whether they're in Israel or outside of Israel. But the mitzvahs that apply only in Israel, which are not agricultural, so Egla Rufa or Smicha or Kiddush HaChodesh, those are mitzvahs which are communal. They do not apply to an individual. And the only community of Jews are people living in Israel. A community of Jews outside of Israel is really individuals living together. Only Israel is able to combine the Jews into a halachic community, a tzibor. So those communal mitzvahs only apply in Israel. But again, it does not require Kedushas Eretz Yisrael. It's not about having sanctified land. It's about the status of Eretz Yisrael. So anywhere that has shame Eretz Yisrael, anywhere that's considered Eretz Yisrael, even if it's not sanctified, combines the Jews into a tzibor, and that tzibor is obligated in the communal mitzvahs. So this is a very nice formulation of the essence of what shame Eretz Yisrael means. Now, Reb Aaron Soloveitchik, in his discussion of this in Perach Mata Aaron, so he adds a number of further additional halachas that also depend on shame Eretz Yisrael, not Kedushas Eretz Yisrael. So first of all, the Gemara in Ksubis Chafei Amud Beis has a view that even though Truma nowadays is only Drabanan, because Israel is no longer sanctified, but Chala is the Oraisa. So the Shagas Aryeh asks, how could such a thing be possible if Truma is Drabanan because there's no sanctity? So how is Chala de Oraisa? There's no sanctity to the wheat that grew in Israel. So we dealt with this question at some length in a supplemental recording in Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi at the end of Hilchos Shemitah But Rab Aaron gives another answer based on this idea. He says that Truma depends on Kedushas Eretz Yisrael, but Chala depends on Shame Eretz Yisrael. So even though there was no Kedusha after the exile, there was still a Shame Eretz Yisrael, and that's why Chala is the Oraisa nowadays. So even though Chala seems to be an agricultural mitzvah, but Rab Aaron saying that it would depend on shame Eretz Yisrael, and that's why it's in full force even after the exile. Now, in addition, he adds that the first issue in Meseches Gitin is about Befanei Nechtav Befanei Nechtam. If someone delivers a get from Chutzla Aretz to Israel, so the messenger has to say it was written and signed in front of me. 
So again, Rabbi Aaron points out, and this makes sense, and this answers a question that he has, that Bifanai Nechtav depends on shame Eretz Yisrael, not Kedushas Eretz Yisrael. It doesn't have to do with the sanctity of Israel. It has to do with what's considered Israel. Now in the Shi'ure HaRav on Sanhedrin, he quotes on page 189, footnote 262, that Rabbi Yosef Dov also added this bit, that Bifanai Nechtav depends on shame Eretz Yisrael, not Kedushas Eretz Yisrael. And he added two further Halachas. There is a halacha that chutz la'aretz, the land, is considered tamay. So if someone goes out into chutz la'aretz, we assume they came into contact with a dead body. So again, Rabbi Yosef Dov says that, that depends on shame Eretz Yisrael, not kedushas Eretz Yisrael. And there is another halacha that if a Jew sells his slave from Israel to Chutz Aretz, the slave goes free. And that too depends on Shem Eretz Yisrael, not Kedushas Eretz Yisrael. Now in Shiure HaRav on Chala, beginning on page 128, so he also adds additional mitzvahs that depend on Shem Eretz Yisrael and not Kedushas Eretz Yisrael. So one is Matnos Aniyam, the gifts to the poor that the farmer has to give, just like he gives to the Kohen and the Levi. So there were certain tithes and gifts like Leket, Shechecha, and Peah, the corn Corners that he gave to the poor. So again, this seems like an agricultural mitzvah and it should depend on Kedushas Eretz Yisrael, but Rabbi Yosef Dov argues that it depends on Shem Eretz Yisrael. So that's why it would apply to the borders of the Ole Mitzrayim of Yehoshua, and it should also apply nowadays Mida Oraisa. So the Rambam only says that Truma and Meiser nowadays are Jarabanan because a majority of the Jews didn't capture it, but when it comes to Matnosanim, he does not not say that they're only drabana. So according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, that's because they are still the Oraisa because they depend on Shem Eretz Yisrael, not Kedushas Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Sefer Achinoch at the end of Mitzvah Reish Tes Zion writes explicitly that according to the Rambam, Peya and the Matnos Aniyim are only Drabanan nowadays, not the Oraisa. And the Minchas Chinoch wonders, where did the Minchas Chinoch see this in the Rambam? Because again, the Rambam only said so regarding Truma and Meiser, not Matnos Aniyim. So Rabbi Yosef Dov's explanation of the Rambam does not fit into the Sefer HaChinuch. He contradicts this idea. But again, the Minchas Chinuch questions where the Sefer HaChinuch got his source from. Where did he see this in the Rambam? And Rabbi Yosef Dov also adds that the mitzvah of Bikurim, bringing the first fruits to the Kohen in the Beis HaMikdash, also works a little bit differently than the other agricultural mitzvahs. But I'm not going to get into that. And we also saw in an earlier recording that Rab Chaim also considers Bikurim a little different than the regular agricultural mitzvahs. So there are some unusual features about Bikurim. Either way, there are a number of mitzvahs, we've seen about 10 so far, that are dependent on Shem Eretz Yisrael and not the more standard way we think about this of Kedushas Eretz Yisrael. So we've seen so far the mitzvah of Egla Rufa, of Smicha, of Kiddush HaChodesh, of Ibor Hashana, of appointing a king, of destroying Amalek, of building the Beis HaMikdash, of not living in Egypt, perhaps the mitzvah of Chala, perhaps the mitzvah of Matnos Aniyim, the rules of Bifanai Nechtav of Aget, the rules of Tuma of Chutz Aretz, and the rules of selling a slave outside of Israel. So this is an important concept with a number of practical applications, the way the Soloveitchiks are developing it. Now, philosophically, it's perhaps even more important because one of the big questions here is according to the view that the land of Israel lost its sanctity after the exile, so what does that mean practically for us? Now, there are two views. One is that only after the first exile, the 
land lost its Kedusha, but not after the second exile. So we're in the second exile, so the land is still sanctified. But there is a view in the Gemara in some Rishonim that even the second sanctity was lost after the exile. So what does it mean that Israel is no longer sanctified, that there's no point in living there? It's not a holy land at all? It sounds impossible to say things like that because, of course, we know that Israel continues to be the most special sanctified land. So what does it mean when the Gemara starts saying that the land of Israel loses its sanctity during the exile? And a lot of commentators are aware of this problem, that it seems impossible that the land of Israel could ever actually lose its sanctity entirely. So this is on some level what Reb Moshe Soloveitchik is answering with his idea that even though it's true that the land lost its sanctity, but it's still the chosen land. There is a separate component to the land of Israel that it is the chosen land, which is different than whether it's currently sanctified. The land of Israel is chosen, which means that eventually when Mashiach comes back and sanctifies a land, it has to be that land of Israel. Mashiach can't choose to sanctify some other land. And in the Shi'ure Harav on Chala, he quotes a number of sources for this idea that there is a chosenness to the land of Israel that that the holy land cannot be moved anywhere else. So the Gemara in Erchen Yudamid Beis says that before the Jews came into Israel, they could say Hallel in other lands. But once they came into Israel, the only Hallel for a miracle is in Israel. So again, we see that Israel is the chosen land above other lands. And the Mechilta says similarly that before the Jews were in Israel, Hashem would speak to prophets in any land. But once the Jews came into Israel, prophecy is only in the land of Israel. So this has nothing to do with the rules of Israel, but it shows us that Israel is the chosen land. And we mentioned the Rambam earlier that if a king captures land before he captures the borders of Israel, so that land is not fully sanctified. So again, we see that there is significance to the borders of the land that Hashem chose, and that's the land that he selected to eventually become the sanctified land after the Jews captured it. But no other land is eligible to be sanctified in that way. So based on this, Rabbi Yosef Dov explains the phrase in the benching, Eretz Chemda, Tova or Rechava, the precious land, that Chemda means that it was chosen. And that's also why Israel is compared in the Medrash to an Esrog, because the translation of Esrog in Aramaic is the chosen one. So the land of Israel is the chosen one. And it's also called Tzion, which means to be selected, that this is the land that was selected. So from all these sources, we get this notion that Israel is selected in addition to being sanctified. And that selection means that no other land could be sanctified. So if all the Jews in the world move to some other country and capture it, it's not sanctified in the way Eretz Yisrael is because it has to be the land that was chosen by God. Now, to highlight this philosophical problem, in Nefshar Rav on page 81, he quotes an interesting story that one time Rabbi Yosef Dov had a visiting guest lecturer, a rabbi came and gave a speech to his shir, and he spoke about the issue of Dushari and Kedusha Shnia, the two sanctifications of the land. And in the middle of the shir, he said that when the Jews were in exile in Bavel, so the 70 years between the first and second Beis HaMikdash, not only was the land of Israel not sanctified, but the Jews didn't even own the land during that period. So it was ownerless. The Jews did not own it. 
So the next day before Rabbi Yosef Dov began his shear, he said to his students that he totally disagrees with what the rabbi said yesterday. That's not the way it works, that the Jews lose ownership of the land of Israel. That's what the Arabs say, that the Jews don't own Israel. And that's the claim that Rashi quotes at the beginning of his commentary on the Torah. But says Rabbi Yosef Dov, that's incorrect, even when the land lost its sanctity, but the Jews continued to own the land. And that's like the idea of his father, that the shame Eretz Yisrael never left the land of Israel. So this story dramatizes some of the philosophical issues that Reb Moshe's approach resolves. Now, the Nefshar Rav continues, and he quotes a very interesting point based on this that Reb Yosef Dov used to quote in the name of his father. So this ties into the whole idea of shame Eretz Yisrael, as well as this issue of who owns the land of Israel when the Jews are in exile. So there's something called the Heter Mechira, which is a very controversial halachic debate during the year of Shemitah nowadays it's very hard for all the Jewish farmers in Israel to stop planting their land so the chief rabbinate organizes a sale and any Jewish farmer who wants to quote unquote sell his land to a non-Jew can do so and then there's a lot of work that they're allowed to do on the land because it's no longer Jewish owned so this halachic debate has been going on for well over a hundred years since Jews started moving back to Israel and opening up farms, and there's been a lot of discussion. Now, the Soloveitchiks were in general against the Heter Mechira, starting with the Beis HaLevi, and Reb Moshe Soloveitchik added another problem to the Heter Mechira. So there's a lot of debate back and forth, a lot of proofs that the Heter Mechira works, and a lot of problems raised with it, but this is now a new one based on what we're discussing. Reb Moshe Soloveitchik said that when the Jews went into exile, so the private ownership of the land of Israel was lost. So up until then, there had been a certain division of different farms and different families inherited them from generation to generation. And that whole process came to an end when the Jews were exiled. They no longer had that private family ownership over specific plots. But rather, now the Jewish people owned the whole land of Israel together. So it was like a communal ownership that all of the Jewish people own the land of Israel. So based on this, says Reb Moshe, any Jew living in Israel nowadays owns their farm, but only on one level. The government says that they are the ones that have the rights to use that property. But on a halachic level, the entire Jewish people owns all of the farmland. So because of this, Reb Moshe objected to the Heter Mechira because you can't have one Jew sell land that really belongs to the entire Jewish people. So that's an interesting objection. So that means when the visiting rabbi said that the Jews lost their ownership of the land during the exile, he wasn't entirely wrong. They did lose the financial ownership of individuals owning their farmland. But according to Reb Moshe and Reb Yosef Dov, now the ownership shifted that the entire Jewish people own the entire land of Israel together. So these are all very interesting ideas. And again, they help resolve the central question that what does it mean the land of Israel lost its sanctity? Obviously, the land is not like any other land. It has some special status. And Rab Moshe is helping us understand what that is. It's the shame Eretz Yisrael, which never goes away. Now, it's worth comparing
comparing Reb Moshe's approach to some other approaches in the commentators, because obviously other commentators are also aware of this problem. So in the earlier recording on Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi, the supplement at the end of Hilchus Shemitah V'Yovel, we dealt with a related question, and one of the approaches that Rabbi Yosef Dov develops based on his grandfather Rab Chaim, and this is also what the Minchas Chinuch that we referenced earlier in Mitzvah Dalid, he also has this suggestion, that even though the land of Israel lost its sanctity, but the area of the Beis HaMikdash never lost its sanctity. So that's actually a debate between the Rambam and the Raivid. The Rambam holds that the land lost its sanctity, but the area of the Beis HaMikdash did not. And the Raivid, very shockingly, and this is a very unique minority opinion, which is probably only the Raivids, he believes that nowadays even the area of the Beis HaMikdash lost its sanctity. So that's a very radical view. But the mainstream opinion is that even though the land of Israel lost its sanctity, the area of the Beis HaMikdash did not. So based on this, these commentators suggest that since there is some sanctity left in the land of Israel on the mountain of the Beis HaMikdash, so that sanctity in some way affects the city of Yerushalayim as well as the whole land. So even though Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim lost their sanctity on a technical level, but because they have the area of the Beis HaMikdash in them, so they do retain some sanctity coming from that mountain. So that's one approach to explaining the specialness of Eretz Yisrael nowadays. Now, there's another very important approach to this in the Rishonim. In the Chuvis Tashbeit's Chelek Gimel Simen Reish and Reish Aleph, he has a very fundamental discussion of the whole issue of the sanctity and the status of Eretz Yisrael nowadays. And he makes a lot of key points. This is one of the central halachic discussions. But for our purposes, he makes a very important distinction between the Kedushas Shechina and the Kedushas Mitzvos. The sanctity of the divine presence being in Eretz Yisrael versus the sanctity of the land that there's extra mitzvos which are obligated on the land. And according to the Tashbeits, even if the Kedusha of the mitzvos disappeared at the exile, but the Kedusha of the Shechina, the divine presence, never left Eretz Yisrael. So the whole discussion in the Gemara, whether the land of Israel lost its sanctity, is with regard to the extra agricultural mitzvahs, but it's not with regard to the extra divine presence, the Kedusha's Shechina, which is in the land of Israel. So this is a very important distinction. Now, the Tashbeitz is unclear whether the Kedusha's remains in the entire land of Israel. He does say very clearly that it remains in the area of the Beis HaMikdash. So that's like the Rambam against the Raivid. And the Tashbeitz actually extends this idea of the Rambam not only to the Beis HaMikdash, but to the whole city of Yerushalayim. So as the Tashbeitz says, There's a big distinction between the sanctity of the land of Israel more generally versus the area of the Beis HaMikdash. Because the sanctity of the Mizbeach and Yerushalayim is because of the divine presence, the Shechina, and the Shechina can never be canceled. So the Tashbeitz says very clearly 
that the area of the Beis HaMikdash and Yerushalayim are certainly sanctified, but it's unclear whether this applies to the broader Eretz Yisrael. Now, in the Sefer Kaftar Vaferach, which is a Sefer from the Rishonim on Eretz Yisrael, so in chapter 10, he also passionately believes in this idea that even if the land lost its sanctity, that's only with regard to the extra mitzvahs, but not in terms of the actual sanctity itself. And he speaks very elegantly and passionately about this, that from the time the land was given to Avraham, it was already sanctified and it never lost its sanctity through all the destructions and the exiles. The only thing that changed was some of the obligation to keep the mitzvahs, but in no way did the sanctity of the land get lessened. And the same basic approach is adopted by the Chassam Sofer. He also has an important discussion of this in his Chuvis in Yeridea, Chelek Beis, Simon Reish Lamed Dalid. This is a Shuva to Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Margolios, who wrote the Beis Ephraim and the Sharei Ephraim and other Sfarim. So in this Shuva, they're discussing the allocation of money and whether Yerushalayim and Eretz Yisrael still maintain an elevated status over other places. And again, the Chasim Sofer adopts this basic distinction that even if the mitzvahs don't apply in Eretz Yisrael Mido Raisa, but it still retains its sanctity. So the Kaftar Vaferach and the Chasim Sofer are clear that they extend this sanctity even now days to the whole of Eretz Yisrael. Now, there's a lot of important details in all these discussions, and it would be good to have a separate recording going through the Tashbeits and the Chasim Sofer's discussions, but one interesting issue is that the Kaftar Vaferach says that the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael began Mishas Nisinasa El Ha'avos Akdoshim, from the time that it was promised to Avraham. So it sounds like before that, according to the Kaftar Vaferach, the land was not special, only when Hashem selected to give it to Avraham. Whereas the Chassam Sofer writes that the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael is Kedushas Olamim, Mimos Olam, Ad Sof Kol Yimos Olam. It's a sanctity that comes from the beginning of time until the end of time, Lo Nishtane Vlo Yishtane. It has not changed and it will not change. So according to the Chassam Sofer, the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael is built into the creation of the world. Now, there's another very interesting point from the Tashbeits. At the end of his tshuva, and again, he says clearly that the whole city of Yerushalayim is still sanctified, and he brings an unbelievably fascinating proof to this. There's a Mishnah that says that one of the ten miracles of the Beis HaMikdash is that even if it was packed, no one ever felt squished. So everyone always felt comfortable that they had enough space even if there was a packed crowd. Says the Tashbeits, this miracle is still going on because he's heard that there's a shul in Yerushalayim which has enough room for the people that live there year-round. But for Shavuos, a lot of visitors show up and there's more than 300 people, which is way more than the shul should physically be able to hold. And still, everyone has enough space. So this miracle of the Beis HaMikdash, that there's enough space for everybody and they don't feel squished, still continues nowadays in the times of the Tashbeits that there's a shul in Yerushalayim that gets filled up with 300 people and it should not be able to hold them, but the same miracle happens. And the Tashbeits ends, and this is a sign that there will be a third redemption 
redemption because we see that Yerushalayim is still a sanctified city. So this is obviously a very fascinating proof to his halachic position. And the Tashbates in his commentary on Pirkei Avos called Magin Avos also repeats the same thing that he heard that the same miracle is ongoing in Yerushalayim even in his day. Now the story gets more fascinating. The Chassam Sofer and his tshuva on this quotes this tradition from the Tashbait, and then he unbelievably adds, Hashem yodea ki enai ro Hashem knows that I saw this with my own eyes outside of Israel, in Chutz amenu. But I can't expand on this because of the unpious Jews who I guess will start attacking him or criticizing him if he puts this down in writing. So according to the Chassam Sofer, there's actually no miracle that the Beis HaMikdash was able to include all the people who came to visit because that's what's to be expected even in Chutz La'aretz. So the miracle in the Beis HaMikdash, the way the Chassam Sofer explains it, is a little different. That when the Jews were all standing in the Beis HaMikdash, they actually were squished together. It was uncomfortable. But then when they bowed Miraculously, there was enough space. So the miracle was the first part, that when they were all standing, they were squished, and the point of that miracle was that they should have more reward for coming to visit the Beis HaMikdash and being slightly uncomfortable. So the Chassam Sofer rereads this whole miracle. The miracle is not that there was extra space, because that's not limited to the Beis HaMikdash or Yerushalayim. That happens even in Chutz Laaretz, as the Chassam Sofer himself saw. The miracle was that even though there was extra space, Hashem made them squished when they were standing in the Beis HaMikdash, to give them more reward. So that's something to keep in mind next time we're a little uncomfortable in a shul or a yeshiva, that only enhances the reward. Now on the bottom of the new Chassam Sofers and in the Likute Ha'aros on this tshuva of the Chassam Sofer, so they actually quote what the Chassam Sofer is referring to. What miracle did he see outside of Israel that there was enough room for a large crowd? So one of the Chassam Sofer's students, Rab Shlomo Zalman Ehrenreich, he writes in a letter that the Chassam Sofer is referring, in fact, to his own yeshiva in Pressburg, where they had the same problem, that there were over 400 students and they should not have all fit in. And he says, if you look at the building nowadays, I don't know if it's still standing, but he says that it's a small building and there was a miracle that it held every student because it was a sanctified building. It expanded and it was able to include all the students comfortably. So that's what the Chassam Sofer is referring to. So this is an amazing tangent the Tashbates and the Chassam Sofer about shoals in their times that hold extra people, all to prove the Tashbates' original idea that there is still sanctity in Yerushalayim, in the area of the Beis HaMikdash, and perhaps all of Eretz Yisrael, even though the mitzvahs are no longer commanded. So now we have three approaches to the basic issue. What is the sanctity nowadays of Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim if according to the Gemara there's a view that the sanctity ended at the exile? So it's possible that there is a minority opinion. There are some people like the Ravid who would say that in fact there is no longer sanctity. But the mainstream view is that there is still some sanctity and we've seen three approaches to this. The Tashbates, the Kafter Vaferach and the Chassam Sofer suggest that even if the mitzvahs don't apply there is still the divine presence in the land of Israel. So the Gemara is saying that the mitzvahs that specific sanctity ended but not the sanctity of the Shekhinah. Second, we saw from Rab Chaim and the Minchas 
Chinuch, that there's an approach that even if the land lost its sanctity, but the Beis Hamikdash area never lost its sanctity. And as the land that houses that special area of the Beis Hamikdash, it's still all sanctified. So the sanctity of the Beis Hamikdash area travels to the rest of Eretz Yisrael. And finally, in this recording, we saw Reb Moshe's idea that even if the land lost its sanctity practically, but it's still the chosen area, which means that in the future, no other land can be chosen to be sanctified other than Eretz Yisrael. So that's what makes it special even nowadays.